This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. We've got a great show lined up for you this week. Our interview guest is John Englehart. As many of you know, John is best known as racing's regular guy, a name he assumed from the regular guy racing show that was broadcast during his days at River Downs. John was referred to by the Daily Racing Forum's Jay Hovde as the blue-collar Harvey Pack. John himself has a podcast in which he takes his style of covering racing and interviewing racing personalities each week on winningponies.com. His broadcast comes out every Thursday at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and the podcast can be found on winningponies.com. I first met John many moons ago when he was the publicist at River Downs, and I was an aspiring writer looking to write an article about the job of being a race caller. As such, I got to spend the day with John's good friend, the now-deceased Kevin Gomer. So we got to reminisce about Kevin, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. We got to talk about how John got into racing, the beauty of Old River Downs, and what he is up to these days. A great guy and very easy to talk to. I think you will enjoy the discussion. So, John, I know, uh, you know you got your start, actually, in horse racing when you were quite a young lad. Is that correct? Well, yeah, absolutely. If you go back to the beginning, I started out at uh, one of the palaces of the sport, and that's Saratoga. Uh, my mm-hmm. brother Bob was a white cap up there. That was a person that uh, seated people uh, in the, in certain sections of the clubhouse. And at the time, we lived in Albany. And so my brother Bob and a friend by the name of Johnny Sanchirico, who's also a white cap, would go up earlier in the mornings to get everything set and ready. And then I would go up in the afternoons with Mrs. Sanchirico and I would run uh, Bob and Johnny's bets for him. I'd uh, <laughs> duck under the turnstile, go to their section. They would take off their almost like cabbie-like hats and they'd have their program in there and they'd say, get me $10 on the three horse and <laughs> put their hat back on. And then I would go back, hand the money to Mrs. Sanchirico and she would make the bets. And if I did a good job that day, I got a nice uh, hot fudge Sunday after the last race. Mm, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it was super because in between races, you know, I could go down into the paddock. As you know, that the, they had these the separate uh, uh, jockey room where the jockeys would have to walk through there. And I'd be walking through with, uh, you know, Bill Shoemaker, Manny Yakaza, mm. uh, Johnny Rotz, uh, you know, all, all of these, uh, you know, icons of the sport, Braulio Beza, and it was just kind of neat to be around those guys. And I think that's where I got the bug. And eventually, uh, you know, somebody bought me a brownie camera, and I started taking photos of these guys. And uh, you know, that was the the love of the game. We'd go back. There's a place called Carlson's Newsstand uh, okay. in Albany, New York, and you'd go back in about oh, 11 o'clock at night, uh, anywhere between 11 and midnight. A truck would pull up. 
the daily racing forms would get tossed off the back, and that you'd be there surrounded by the same group of Damon Runyon characters <laughs> every night. And, uh, you know, Bob and I would, uh, he'd get the form, and I'd drive back with him, and sit at the kitchen table, and he'd give me a section, and he'd say, you know, this was before the days, you know, the, the form has come so far, a uh, vast information. Right where you did know who had the bullet work at each distance, but you didn't know who had the second, third, and fourth fastest. So my job, while he was handicapping the PPs, was to find out what horses had those, you know, second of uh, 45, uh, third of 45, fourth of 45, and he'd keep a list of those workouts so he knew them because that wasn't anything that stood out on the racing form at the time. All you saw was the horses that had the bullets. So that was a nice edge, and it was just the interaction hanging out with my older brother was kind of cool. And uh, so those were the early days, and then sooner or later you kind of pick up the nuances of handicapping. And then as we grew on, my whole family loved the racing at Saratoga, and we would meet uh, the Traverse Stakes is what we call the Holy Race of Obligation, and uh, we would all show up with coolers in the paddock and and hang out. And you know, back then horses had a tree, and you could go up and watch them right. know, walk around the tree like they do at Keeneland. But even Keeneland is now restricted your access to that. But back in those days, you could get right on top of the action, and oh, it was wow. such a beautiful place. Still is, yeah. And but it was just a super super introduction to the sport, but. Uh, you know, sometimes life gets in the way, and I ended up going to college. Uh, didn't get to the, go to the races as much, but I wasn't too far from a track. And every now and then, I'd sneak away and go down to uh, River Downs in Cincinnati or Beulah Park in Columbus. You know, uh, John, you, you touched on a couple of things that are pretty interesting there. As, as you were describing your brothers, uh, you know, and, and and your friend the, the Whitecaps, and them, you know, pulling off their hat to tell you which horse to bet. And you talked about the, how the far the racing form has come. That was when you really had to learn the sport from the ground up. You know, watch the races carefully because there were no replays available for you to look at or anything like that. Um, I, you know, I think to build some connection within the community as well to understand that uh, you know, hey, so and so has a hot horse back there. Uh, now you can learn who's got the hot horses by digging into blood horse and racing form articles, things like that. It was a ground up effort, I think, learning the sport back then, wasn't it? It really was because now, you know, you look at what they provide you with the uh, the jockey trainer stats or trainer's win percentage right. after a certain number of day layoff. You know, these are things that you had to keep by hand in notebooks. And, and of course, now the racing form uh, lays it out for you. But if you could get that edge back in the day, if you had the time or if you had a team, uh, I'm sure Johnny did one thing, Bob did the other, and then on their drive up to the track every day would compare notes. You had, you had a good edge and some of the other handicappers. I, I know my brother sent himself to Europe uh, after a meet one year. And so, you know, that, that was a bad year at the races, quite frankly. Uh, so, yeah, that's the whole thing was the, the data gathering was all manual. And now with all the wagering format you have and you have all of these different outlets of which to uh, get, you know, people's best bet of the days or uh, different analytics and things like that. Um, it's it's a whole new world, but that whole new world is what our kids are growing up in and that they demand if they're going to be wagering their hard-earned money on a sport that, quite frankly, in the beginning is very difficult to understand. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know baseball has a lot of stats, but there is nothing more complex than a single running line of a horse right. in a daily racing form. Right. No, I, I had the experience one time trying to so, show my now son-in-law 
just like you said, one running line. And I started talking about maiden special weight racing. And about 45 seconds later, I just looked at him and I said, just, just bet what I bet. Just, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I love when people say, hey, can you teach me a handicap? I'm like, yeah, you got like 45 years. I'd be happy to, you know, because it evolves. And, yeah. and so hopefully too does. And I always encourage people to track or always did as a track publicist, go down to the paddock. First of all, it's big part of the enjoyment of the day is taking in the horses, the jockeys, the people, and the, the sights and the smells. But the other thing is if you do it long enough, you kind of have an idea of what horse looks like he's having a good day yeah. and yeah. what horse might be having a bad day. And so I, I really in, encourage you know people to do that. And then, and then sooner or later, they get comfortable with it. So you don't, don't try to give it to them all at once. Give them baby steps. Let them learn. And best of all, let them have a winning day at the race. And they're going to think, oh, now I got the edge. Uh, whenever trainer W.J. Danner rides Periutes, it's, you know, a 38% win, you know, mm. and all of a sudden it's like the light goes on. And and then hopefully we have them for life as, as handicappers because, as you know, uh, you know, we need that. <laughs> well, you said something interesting, too, John, and it, re it reminds me of something that T.K. Kugler, who runs some partnerships, he's been a guest before on the podcast, he runs some partnerships for wasabi venture stables and he said something very similar to what you said is when he brings new people to the track you know he encourages them to find find one angle find one thing that you're comfortable with that makes sense to you and and go with that you know hopefully you'll have a little bit of success with that and then you know that's a building block that you can go on from there and, and your point about the paddock i i think about this one all the time this is probably now for me 25 years ago being at saratoga one day and uh it was a favorite that I, I – and I can't remember why I was against the favorite, but I, I was against the favorite that day, and and, and I, I felt pretty strongly about it, but I was worried that I was on a fool's errand. So I went down to the paddock, and I was watching the saddling, and every time they tried to put this saddle on, there were probably three or four attempts to put the saddle on, the horse with the favorite would give a big cow kick backwards, and I thought, this – this guy does not want to be here today. He he absolutely does not want to be here today. And sure enough, he did not. And I, I cashed nice tickets. So, you know, that that's another, you know, there's one thing that you can hang your hat on. And, and you know, horse looks happy, healthy. His coat is shiny. Maybe that's an angle you can go with to start out with, right? Yeah. And, and Bill, one big picture that you have to take in in our sport uh, compared to other betting venues, uh, particularly casino, is uh, I can walk into a casino and in about five minutes drop a hundred bucks mm -hmm. with, a, with a few bad rolls of the dice or, you know, b pulls of a slot machine. When you go to racing, I say budget your money. Let's say you you want to bet 50 bucks that day and you can bet 50 bucks and if you lose it, you don't feel bad. You've got five hours of pleasure in front of you, you know, mm -hmm. and so so you get to spend the whole day. It's social. If you go to a casino, look at people. They're either zeroed in on a machine or they're totally involved in what they are doing alone to make money. Whereas at the track, it's a social event, particularly if you go with your friends. And another thing that I used to always encourage people to do and still do is, you know, if they're kind of new to the game, is the show parlay. Uh, you know, it lessens you what, yeah. what you're going to take home, yep. but it broadens the chance of all of you to cheer together, do high fives. Hey, we won, we won. Your horse only has to finish third. But it is amazing how if you all four of you kick in five bucks and you start with 20 bucks, how that can slowly but surely multiply if you have about five winners. And all of a sudden, you're betting $60 to show. And you go, how did that just happen? It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it just grows. If You know, and you can't get faint-hearted and pull your money out, you know. Yeah. You got 
got to right. go with it. Right. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's a great way. And so you have that option in, in racing. And it's not an option you have in, in a lot of the other gambling formats. And, and it's one I recommend. So, you know, remember, uh, not only, uh, you know, is it a chance to make money, but it's a chance to be social, to have fun with your friends, maybe a couple cold ones. Uh, you go to the clubhouse for the afternoon and enjoy a lunch. You know, th- there's just so many other benefits, I think, to horse racing than there are in a lot of other betting venues. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that one, John. You know, and, and having people walk out of their initial experience at the track with a winning feeling, even if in your, take your example to show parlay, let's say that they, they they ran through the first three and they increased it, and then the fourth one, let's say the callers got a little tight, they made the wrong pick and he finished out. They're still going to talk about that group. They're still going to talk about that run of three that they had. And, oh, man, if we had just done this, you know, we could have kept it going. And that's a big – giving them some form of winning feeling, that's a big deal. That's a big part of the getting them back, to your point. Yeah, and they can always reload after that fourth race. Well, there you go. (laughs) Let's do it again. That's true. We we came close. But, you know, it's a great way to dip your toe in the water and to get people to enjoy it. It's a great, great game. Well, you know, and your point about casino gambling is good too, John. I, I have a, a big score story we recorded that we aired a few weeks ago. A uh, gentleman I know, you know, the the pick three. Now, this requires an advanced level of handicapping, right? But the pick three at Tampa, you can bet in 50-cent units, all right? And this gentleman, uh, Jim, who I, I, who I know, he turned a $4 pick three bet into $950 last year. And, and the point I always try to make to people when I tell that story is, if you had to turn four dollars into nine hundred fifty in the casino, you would have to have an incredible run of blackjack or roulette success that you are unlike, completely unlikely to have. Right? Um, yeah. If you were to bet four dollars on the Patriots to win the Super Bowl every year, you would have to win how many Super Bowls in a row would you before you would get nine hundred? Right? It's 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 just so that the rewards are there, but. It, it is baby steps too, right? And 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 so actually, the show parlay is a great idea, a great way to get people into it, um, and get them get them going. Hey, John, back to your New York uh, experience. I do want you to just relay. I know you mentioned to me one time that you have some pictures of a gentleman who has become quite well known in New York racing, but uh, at the time he was. Let's call him little known. Let's put it that way. <laughs> little known is exactly a good lead into that, Bill. Uh, back in the days when I used to go, and I've got black and white photos, uh, there was a kid that used to run around the paddock at Saratoga giving out the next day's overnights, and his name was Little Andy. And he was Little Andy because his hero was Andy Byer. And we all know Little Andy now as the Naira analyst that you see almost every day on television when uh, New York is running. As a matter of fact, sometimes he does some out-of-town gigs. So I actually have somewhere in my collection a black-and-white photo of Little Andy wearing a derby running around <laughs> the, the paddock <laughs> at Saratoga handing out overnights. And everybody probably could say, ah, I don't believe that. I'm going to find that damn photo and it, spread it around. He may not want me to put it on the Internet, but at least he's still that hair then. <laughs> John, I, I will guarantee you somebody will pay a lot of money for those photos, either Andy himself or, or somebody else, right? So th- there's a market there for that. That's, uh, that's really funny. Wow. Uh, it's a great game, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just proud to be in it uh, on a lot of different levels. Uh, and I've had some great experiences, lifelong friendships, and uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather have a good story than a good time.
<laughs> that's what we, listen. I think I think all horse players love good stories. I think that's part of what brings us together. Is 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 we like stories. So uh, uh, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Hey, hey, John. So you went from upstate New York to the Midwest. I think you said you went to school out in Ohio, correct? Southwest Ohio, and were able to keep your love of the game going. Yeah, yeah. I was. Um a student, or I actually graduated from the University of Dayton, and um, I went there for kind of photography and fine arts, but uh, I, my, my co-major was social work, so I ended up in the, uh, the criminal justice field when I first got out. Picasso was still employed and a few of those guys, so I couldn't get their job, <laughs> and so uh, I moved into criminal justice, and uh, for some reason, it's one of those things, if you hang around long enough, everybody in front of me getting fired, and the judges liked me, and they kept moving me up in the system, and before I knew it, I was the activities director of a brand new and helped write the uh, program for a community correctional institute, and uh, like I said, I, I was there, supervisor, activity coordinator, and uh, like I said, all of a sudden, the director got fired, and they called me in for an interview and said, hey, are you interested in doing this? And I'm like, well, I don't have the requirements. I don't have a criminal justice degree, and the judge says, well, we can change that. So they just put a little asterisk and said, or equal experience, and uh, I ended up being the uh, youngest uh, warden of a correctional institution in North America. Oh my gosh! Wow, wow! <laughs> but, but, but Bill, Bill, that's what got me to the races. Because believe me, if you do that stuff, the pressure is is pretty intense. And the other thing is, if you are successful in rehabilitating somebody, the whole idea is you never see them again. So you never know if you do a good job or a bad job. But you do know now there's an extra bed, and there's a guy with a whole set of bad luggage coming back coming in that front door <laughs> for you to work with. Okay. So on the weekends, just to kind of blow steam off, I would go down to River Downs okay. and, uh, you know, on a pretty regular basis because there's a whole lot of steam to blow off. <laughs> and uh, I got to know all the people down there, uh, Pat Lang, who was the um, photographer slash publicity director, and then uh, Kevin Gomer, the track announcer. I pretty much BS my way into the press box and told them I was with the Dayton Daily News. And they're like, oh, here. And they pull out credentials and hand me buttons and, you know. Any coverage is good coverage. You sure. Know? Nobody asked, they asked me for an ID or anything, and I'm like, well, good. If you guys think I'm with the press, I'm with the press. <laughs> and uh, luckily, I had lifelong relationships uh, with uh, both Kevin Gomer and uh, Patrick Lang, who's sad to say both those guys are gone now, but they're huge uh, influences on me. Uh, one is a publicist. The other is a photographer. And... Um, that was back in the day when you could still have a really good time at the races, and I'll tell you, we did. <laughs> well, I know, uh, John, I originally met you, I think it was back in 1991, as I was an aspiring uh, features writer. I was working the corporate life, but I wanted to, to be a features writer, and I was trying to write an article that I wanted to get published in Cincinnati Magazine for about the life of a track announcer because I was always fascinated by the track and, and I always thought what a difficult job that, that is. And I actually, you know, you, you worked your way in as representing the Daily News. I, I called Kevin and told him I was a features writer and could I do a feature on him? And very gracious guy, as you know, and he said, sure, you know, come on up. And I spent the afternoon in the in the in the booth with him, uh, learned a lot. But I know he was a very special friend of of yours, and as you said, sadly he's he's passed on. But I I 
you know, he's one of those people. I met him nearly 30 years ago now, and I still think about him every once in a while, what a nice guy he was. So I would imagine somebody like you has a lot more memories like that as well. Well, yeah, as I may have been the uh, youngest director of a correctional facility, he was one of the youngest track announcers back in the day. You know, he uh, started out, uh, his father worked at uh, Louisville Downs, and then he was going to go to the University of Kentucky, and then he had an opportunity to go up and work uh, at Rockingham Park, not as an announcer, but uh, kind of with the press corps and, uh, you know, with uh, and uh, as a backup announcer, because he used to sit on a haystacks and call race back when he was a jughead he was actually at one point in time was it was the assistant trainer with a well-known man to the harness industry a guy by the name of stanley dancer and so kevin was uh, you know pretty much at the top end but he was a harness guy so he would practice sitting there and calling the races and somebody got sick or something happened and somebody turned around in the press box said hey kid get up there and call the races and this is some people close to you you probably know Rockingham Park so he started there and then uh, uh, he worked his uh, way back down to Kentucky and uh, ended up in Cincinnati's Riverdowns racetrack and uh, just uh, kind of became a mini legend there for uh, some of his great uh, uh, calls and uh, things that he worked into races that now you hear around the country but I can tell you uh, Kevin was the first guy I heard say it. Uh, uh, great quotes like, uh, so-and-so is showing his heels to the field. <laughs> or, uh, you know, the horse that was in last place was, you know, and so-and-so can see them all. <laughs> and then uh, when a horse was coming down the lane and he could see him pull away, he'd just say, put a ring around, chewy slew. <laughs> uh, you know, and of course, probably the one people, well, there's two that people remember him most for. Uh, his Big one, and Kevin had a great radio voice and announcer's voice, mm. uh, would, would, would just be, and Bill Mon- Monroe is all alone. <laughs> and he'd do yeah. that for about a sixteenth of a mile, but he was all alone. And, uh, you know, the local legend was a horse by the name of Tada. Um, and she went on, she broke her maiden in a stake. She went on to win 17 stakes. So she was like the belle of Cincinnati. So every time she'd be coming down the stretch, usually a winning run, he'd, she'd approach the wire and he'd say, you know, and, you know, in the vivacious stakes, it's ta-da. <laughs> and it caught on in Cincinnati. And so every time that Philly would run, the whole grandstand would go, Ta-da! I mean, a couple thousand people, thank God, that's how many we had going to the races then, then were yeah, chanting yeah. ta-da. And she became legendary, you know, I think because of Kevin's race calls. Not only that, she won 17 stakes races. And uh, so, you know, he just uh, had a booming voice. Um, he, I lived up in Dayton, but he had a home not too far from the track. I kind of became like uh, Uncle Buck to their kids. And, uh, you know, then Kevin and I had some pretty, pretty wild nights out. Uh, you know, back then you could have a good time and get away with it. And, uh, of course, uh, there's a story I know I shared with you in the past, but I need to share with your audience again. Um, Bob Railbird Roberts, he was the turf writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He was in town, I'm going to guess, to cover the Cradle Stakes. That was our big race, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the race that, uh, you know, spend a buck one. And uh, we've had, uh, you know, numerous other good horses coming out of there. At least two horses that ran second in the Kentucky Derby. And uh, anyhow, we were out that night, and somehow we ended up with Bob's car. 
I don't know who left whose car where or whatever. So we drive back to Kevin's house, and Kevin and I, we to get in the house, we had to walk through the laundry room. And we looked down, and we saw his wife had been doing the wash, and we looked at each other, and we looked down, and there was a pair of panties. And so the light went off, so we go out into Bob's car and put, put the panties into his glove compartment and close it. Well, of course, we'd been out all night. None of, you know, we, we didn't even remember doing it. And he got a call. About a week later, from Bob Roberts going, UMFers. I'm like, what? He said, UMFers. I took my family out for pizza last night, and I told my wife to reach in the glove compartment that I had some spare money in there. She opens it up, and a pair of women's underpants fall out. <laughs> And he knew it was you. And he knew right away it was you. Well, right away, the light went off. He goes, Who's, who are the only people that would do this to me? You know. And luckily, his wife kind of knew his peripherally. And she's like, I believe you. Don't worry about it. You know. But, uh, you know, that was one of the greatest gags Kevin and I uh, ever had. There were many, many more along the way with our good friend, Carrie Charlson, uh, who was a fantastic innovator in the world of, uh, you know, graphics and mm. uh, racing mm -hmm. video. He's the guy that invented the chiclets and uh, many other things that are now commonplace in racing. But it was the mind of this uh, good friend of ours, Carrie Charlson. And, uh, you know, since the children might listen to the show, I'm not going to go into any more stories in detail. But needless to say, it, times were different back then, and we had some great times, Bill. Well, you, you know, you didn't have the social media aspect, right, to having fun, which, you know, uh, has outed more people than, uh, uh, you know, would, would, would prefer. As you said, you could kind of get away with it back then, which is great. You, you could, but, you know, Kevin's talent was truly amazing for 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 watching a race and um he could spot a horse and he would say it during the running of a race uh, he, you know uh, he, he would just say so and so uh is beginning to make a winning move and i'm looking at him like kevin it's the three furlong pole the horse is in sixth you know oh, wow yeah I'm not saying this for the microphone yeah but and he just knew when a horse's uh, inertia was beginning to take it to the point that it was going to, and, and damn if that horse wouldn't win. And the other thing is he had an amazing eye for for the head bob. And horses be coming down to the wire and, uh, you, you know, say, you know, it's Miss it's Miss Muffin, it's Lady Day, it's Miss Muffin, Lady Day. Miss Muffin gets the win. And everybody else is looking at each other going, whoa. I, I, I wouldn't call that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You're crazy. And the stewards would stop them. They say, hey, on your way in tomorrow, get a placing judge's license, okay? <laughs> he said, you want to make calls like that? Get a placing judge's license. And he turned around and he said, if I tell you a mouse can pull a freight train, you just be there to hook it up. <laughs> That's a great line. That's a great True story. <laughs> So, uh, John, you and Kevin actually, I, I think at Kevin's behest, I think you told me one time, you, you started doing some things on TV at River Downs to educate the Cincinnati public, right? And then to provide them with some taste of the racing life. Yeah, it was. Well, we, we, did, uh, we did a show called The Stretch Run. It was on the local ABC station uh, for a half an hour every Sunday. And we had it come on at like 1130, 12 o'clock so people could watch the show and then uh, come to the races. And, uh, you know, he says, hey, you're a photographer. Now you're a videographer. And so uh, it was really a neat show. It would be, you know, the first section of uh, 
was uh, recap of national racing. And at the time, I'd call all the different tracks. And, you know, back then, we were all starving to get our stuff put on television. And they'd have no problem, sending, you know, shipping me tapes out that we could show, you know, uh, oh, wow. you know John Henry and the greats from around the country uh, to our local fans, you know, saying, you know, this shit was, you know, here's the Arlington Million was run this week or the Santa Anita Derby, whatever it was. And uh, so we would do a national racing segment. Then we would do an informational segment, just things about the starting gate crew. Um, horse, horses getting their teeth, like, Oh, horses go to the dentist? It's like, well, we actually bring the dentist to the horses, but let's talk to this guy. This is what he does. You know, uh, shoeing horses, no hoof, no horse, uh, different equipment. You know, why are they wearing this bit? Why are they wearing this bit? Why are they putting blinkers on? And so it was a real kind of hold your hand, educational show of, of teaching you what the great races were and then what goes into putting the, the, the nuances of getting a horse into the winner's circle. We were close enough to Lexington that we could get to go down and do, you know, stories on, you know, you know Seattle Slough and Secretariat and the farms would welcome us. And uh, then the last segment would be breaking down that day's stakes races. And we'd go back and show replays of why we like this horse, why we like that horse. And uh, it was just a really fun show. And it had a long run. I'm going to say at least eight years. It might have been nine. But like wow. I said, it, it was on the ABC station. And had a super following. It was kind of fun to do. But, uh, yeah, it was it was before its time. And I was just happy to be a part of it. And great exposure not only for the track, but for, for me and Kevin, the people we got to meet and interview along the way you know top jockeys and things like mm. that mm-hmm. so uh it was called the stretch run it was very popular and then we did uh, a show that went statewide called the buckeye racing report every night where we would uh you know break down the races at river downs and run into a station downtown they put it up on the satellite and the show goes statewide on fox sports oh wow and so yeah so that was kind yeah. of neat too that we you know had a lot of chance and i remember uh, chris collinsworth one time from the Bengals, him and boomer used to watch the size and and he said he said john is there a way you can like uh, say a certain word pull your ear or something when you're you know, doing the show because him and Boomer used to sit there and bet against each other. You know? <laughs> and he's like, "Give me a tip, will you, man?" And uh, so, you know, I, so that was a fun part. And then, of course, Cincinnati legend Pete Rose. I think I've told you this story before. You know, he he was he was a regular up there, but sure, yeah. for the days of simulcasting. So if Pete made a thousand dollar bet, the horse was you know immediately. Didn't matter what his odds were, he was the favorite. Yeah. And so we'd always come up and hey Johnny, hey Johnny, who you like? Who you like? And I'd give him a horse I liked at like seven to two. I mean, these Pete Rose, you're gonna give him the horse, right? And uh, and all of a sudden I'd look up at the board before I make my bet, and the freaking horse is even money. Horse would win, but you know I didn't make nine bucks. And I'd go back to the press box and he'd go. Man, if I knew that horse was going to be even money, I probably wouldn't have bet it. I said, Pete, who the hell do you think made that who horse? Made that? You know? Yeah. I said, stop betting 500 across and cut mm. your bet down, and we'll at least get five to two. <laughs> uh, but the, the best story of all, Bill, and uh, I'll may have to leave you with this one because it is unbelievable, is we're sitting there, and it was back in the days when they had the Saturday baseball game of the week, and they happened to be in Cincinnati. And... Uh, that we always would watch a football or baseball game while Kevin's calling the races because he really didn't need concentration. He was so great at it. And we're watching on national TV, and they go, "Whoop! looks like Pete Rose is getting to the phone. Might have a pitching change here, folks. All of a sudden, our phone rings. He's like, hey, Kevin, 
can I listen to the fifth race? <laughs> it was freaking Pete. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> he would send guys out to the track with his bets, you know. Yep. And it was just like, oh, my God, here he is on national TV. They think he's making a pitching change, and instead he's listening to the fifth race at River Downs. <laughs> Joe Garagiola is on TV breaking down Pete's options. What he's talking about on the phone, he has no idea what he's really talking about. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a left-hander's coming up to bat. They're probably going to go to, you know, Billy Jab Boo Boo. You know, and uh, so it was just—it was stuff like that. The people you got to meet, uh, yeah, that, that made it fun. And you know, Kevin was a, a big part of that. And then, well, I, I, I should be happy for him, but sad to say, he left us. But he went on to become the voice of uh, Chicago racing. Right. Uh, started at Arlington, and then he called it Hawthorne and Sportsman's. It was a year-round job. He was doing great. He loved it up there. And then uh, somebody kind of. Uh, backdoored him up at Arlington and convinced, I believe it was Mr. Dusherswell at the time, that, you know, I can probably do this job for a lot less money, you know, if you yeah. want to save money. And Hawthorne and Sportsman's just wasn't enough to carry Kevin and his family through a whole year. So uh, he ended up working for uh, Charleston Broadcasting uh, towards the end. Sad to say he left us too early, but Kevin knew, I forget what the cutoff was, but no male in his family lived past like 45. Mm. So Kevin made sure he fit 90 years into his life. He did. <laughs> and so oh, uh, we lost him at an early age, but it was a pleasure to work with him. And I'm glad you got a chance and that you have memories of him going all as far back as 1991. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I, you know, I was I was a nobody, you know, and he reached out and he let me spend the whole afternoon up there. And I was, like you said, I was amazed by his craft. I, one thing that really amazed me, John, was the amount of activity that went on that he was required to do between races. You know, the, the result becomes official. Bang, he's hitting the recorder. He's calling that into the newspaper. He's calling that into the radio station. Um, doing all this administrative work. And then, you know, here they are. They're out in the pa- out in the post parade for the next race all of a sudden. And, and I'll never forget, he's just... He's got his binoculars up to his eyes for just a second. He's number one, fat boy, fat boy, fat boy. Number two, uh, Joe's... Joe's Janie, Joe's Janie, Joe's Janie. He's just going through this memorization, yeah. you know, and and then, uh, you know, and Fat Boy breaks hard from the rail and takes the lead. I was like, wow, not an easy thing to do. No, and I, you know, a lot of times he'd go down for a sandwich or something. He'd say, hey, John, put him on the track. And so I'd put him on the track, do the post parade. And then what he'd do is on his way up, he'd screw with me. He'd stay and he'd be in the steward stand kind of memorizing him and looking at him. And I'm up there and I'm seeing like two, three horses loaded in the gate. I don't know any of them. So I'm grabbing his binoculars. I'm shaking. And he'd walk in when the eighth horse was being loaded, snatch those glasses out of my hand and call the freaking race. He just loves seeing my blood pressure go up. Oh, man. That's great. Uh, and he would do that on a regular basis. Is he coming? Is he coming? But one time he legitimately got stuck on the elevator and i'm thinking all right kevin's screwing with me kevin's screwing with me and all of a sudden i realized hell man there's like seven horses loaded and i don't even hear his footsteps coming up the steps so luckily there's a horse in the race called do what you do do well never forget it because he was really really fast and he was on a roll and i figure hey i'll just nurse do what you do do well on the front end tell people what the lunch specials are down at ernie's and do all that till kevin finally shows up well Gates open, do what you do, do well, goes to his knees. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm screwed, you know. So meanwhile, the world's worst recorded race was done that afternoon when Kevin was stuck in an elevator at Riverdown. Mm. 
everybody has a plan until they open the gates. That's what the the jockeys like to say, right? And yeah. didn't, didn't know it had impacted the announcers also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, uh, John, um, you mentioned River Downs. It's a place I'm familiar with, having lived in Cincinnati for six years. And I always tell people uh, the most pleasant, relaxing setting to watch the races, in my mind, and all the tracks I've been to, was River Downs, uh, and and I'm sure you know the reasons why. Um, I could tell them, but but why don't you tell tell our listeners what was so special about that place, the setting, and everything? Well, you can build a new racetrack, you can put in a new surface, you can do what you want to do, but you can't change the landscape of the earth. And when you sat in the grandstand at River Downs, you looked over a beautifully manicured turf course. Two generations of the same family took care of that turf course, oh, and then you went beyond. There was a row. Of, of trees, but there were breaks in them, and you would see the barges go up and down the Ohio River, mm. and then past that were the hills of Kentucky uh, that rose up on the other side of the Ohio River. It must have been where the glacier stopped. I don't know. And uh, it was just absolutely magnificent, and you just sat there. You're like, I mean, it, the track itself, no, but, I mean, it was a prettier view than Keeneland. Yes, yeah, it was, agreed. It was mm. gorgeous, and, mm. and the, the Ohio River was right there, and the next thing you looked at was the state of Kentucky. They were only a bridge away. I mean, if you had a good arm, you could hit it with a baseball. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, so that was one of the really beautiful things of River Downs. The other thing was that turf course. Um, people loved it, and the nice thing is where we're located, we would be able to draw horses from Kentucky on a mm. regular basis that wanted to come up and run on the grass. And I'll never forget, Lafitte Benkai was in for the Budweiser Breeders' Cup. And uh, in a minute, the horse's name will come to me. Not that that matters. Uh, but it was a $100,000 race, one hundred fifty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Lafitte came in. He rode on the other undercard against the River Downs Jacks. And almost got beat by a friend of mine, Lori Weidick. He looked over at her after the race. You know, She lost in a headbutt. He said, damn, girl, you can ride. You know, and this was a while before there were that many women yeah. riders. But the main thing was he got off he got off the horse after the Budweiser Breeders' Cup and was coming to the paddock. And uh, Jenny Reese was there from the Louisville Breeders' mm-hmm. Journal. And she was interviewing him. She goes, what do you think about that turf course? He said, Jenny, that's the best turf course I've ever ridden on. And this is a guy that was on Santa Anita and Del Mar yeah, on a regular yeah. basis. And he said, that turf course is the best I've ever ridden on. And so, uh, you know, there were just, uh, you know, things like that about River Downs. And it had nooks and crannies where you'd find this same guy for 30 years after he died. I know his ghost was there. You know, they they just had special spots they wanted to go. And you may remember, Bill, the paddock was designed, it was very accessible. I mean, Mm -hmm. you you were almost, you could stand almost 90 degrees around it on either side. The only opening was the opening to go out on the track, on the track so right great yep. view a you could go up on the, the rail portion where they saddled them and almost reach out and pet the horse and then the paddock itself beautifully manicured um lots of flower beds and you just had a great view of the horses there so you had the landscape you had the access to the horses you had a great turf course um you know, I, I just loved the place until it changed hands and they decided to change a lot of things. Number one, moving the track down a six. Right, meter, right. They moved which it. Which meant right. tearing up the turf course, you know. Oh, and uh, it's, course, they still yeah. have one, but it's just not the same. Yeah. But, uh, 
a lot of places aren't the same anyway. You can probably tell stories about the rock and things like that. Um, but nonetheless, the sport continues, and, and people like you uh, have to continue to be what I like to call an ambassador of the sport and uh, to, to talk about the positives. Yeah, let's, you want to talk about the negatives? I'll put up the newspaper and see a story on Santa Anita this right, week. Right. Um, as soon as I look up and I see a, a horse on, na- on a national news thing, I'm like, Crap! Something yep. bad just happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? No, that's so, right. Unfortunately, like you and uh, uh, the listeners of your uh, podcast to uh, to embrace it and then hopefully to continue it on because it's a great game at every level. Sure, we like the grade ones and the grade twos and stuff, but there's a lot of great action and great people involved with the sport, even in the claiming game. And uh, I think we need enough people to uh, expose. Uh, race you know people to become race goers to appreciate these things and, and you do it through these little nuances we've discussed uh, on the show today no i i agree with you, john i think i think if you know it, it is an obligation of ours that you know we who love this game find ways to you know get people out there to educate them to to get them involved you know there's these partnerships these racing clubs that have sprung up um you know that's a way to get them involved um you know, but just get them going on it because it is a, it's a tremendous sport. Um, and I think one thing I always try and, you know, because that question's come up a lot lately, right, with Santa Anita, you know, about the sport, right? And one thing I always try to impress on people is you don't understand how much the people who work with these horses, these animals day in and day out, how much they love these animals. It, you know, you are concerned because you see something on the news about this, you know, number of horses breaking down. These people are devastated by it. Um, and, and, you know, it, it means a lot more to them than you kind of think it does really. Yeah. Those horses are like their kids. Yes. And don't forget, there's not like, Oh, by the way, guys, I'm going to take Sunday off. So I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> I mean, right. there's seven day a week care morning, noon and night, you know, that has to happen. And these people really are dedicated. And I don't like people that look down their nose at, I'm like, do you realize this is how they make their living? They're not mm-hmm. going to do anything negative to this horse. They're right. not going to do anything that is not in his best uh, benefit of his health because if he doesn't win, they don't get a check. Right. You know, or right. they're out of business if they're not good at what they do. So you've got to understand they're putting 110% into the health and welfare of that horse, hopefully making sure he races at the right level where, you know, they get their purse money back in return for, for their efforts. No, that's right. That's right. They're 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 going to look for places where they can they can win. In fact, that's one of the 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 angles as a handicapper. I like to tell people, you know, the trainer is putting the horse in this spot or that spot. It's either ambitiously placed or he's he's moving them down. You know, if the trainer has any kind of record, that's something to pay attention to if he if he makes a change like that. Absolutely. Just one more thing you learn over many, many years of handicapping. Well, Bill, listen, thanks a million for having me on the show. I am uh, down here in Florida visiting my brothers, and uh, I happen to know that we have dinner reservations someplace, and uh, my big brother's picking up the tabs. So well, then you got to get gives, going. <laughs> that gives me impetus to say goodbye to you and your listeners. Uh, please feel free to call me back at, at any time and uh, c- continue bringing our, our sport forward, Bill. John, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Great discussion. And uh, I would go with a couple of extra drinks, appetizers, dessert. Get the whole thing going tonight, all right? I plan on doing that. But thanks for your advice anyhow. What all would right. I do without it? <laughs> all right, John. Take care. Have a great night. I'll see you, Bill. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. John was a great guest, and I really enjoyed talking to him. As I said, don't forget to catch his Winning Ponies podcast every Thursday 
and on winningponies.com. Moving on to our big score segment, last week's guest handicapper, John McCarthy, relayed a great story to me that brings home the value of being with good friends at the track, especially the kind of friends who will remember to remind you about what you needed to do even when you forgot. We'll let John take it from here. The Big Score segment of our podcast is brought to you by your friends at Endeavor Farm on Old Frankfurt Pike in the heart of the bluegrass. Every Big Score has its roots down on the farm. Boarding, breeding, foaling, layup care, and sales prep are all services offered by Terry Nickel and his team at Endeavor. You can reach Terry at 859-509-7035 or email him at terry at endeavorfarmky.com. That's E-N-D-E-A-V-O-R-F-A-R-M-K-Y.com. Thanks again to our friends at Endeavor Farm for sponsoring The Big Score. Back in 1989, I had lived down there. I was running a resort, and I went through Merrick Management Training in Fort Lauderdale. So on my days off, I'd always go to Gulfstream. And I loved the old Gulfstream Park. I'm not as enamored with the new Gulfstream, but but I loved. I used to love going out in the paddock. And, and in 1987, I l- moved to Pennsylvania to be a regional manager of a bunch of hotels. And my parents, we scheduled a vacation and we were going to meet in Fort Lauderdale. We had uh, my Uncle Tom, my Aunt Marguerite. You know Sandy Cummins. I think you've met her. She's the one that's in Rhode Island. Yes. Her yep. mom lived uh, in, her dad lived in Avocado Isle, which is in Fort Lauderdale, probably 20 minutes from Gulfstream Park. So we are all going to go there, and, and we were, Linda and I were staying in a, we had a hotel, and they were going to stay at my Aunt Marguerite's, my mom and dad, and they were flying Eastern Airlines, and Eastern Airlines went out of business. Wow. Yeah, sure. That's way back. They, they, went, they actually went under that, that day. <laughs> they closed. They, they, they canceled flights. And so my mom and dad had flights on Eastern. So my Uncle Ed, you met Uncle Ed, uh, Uncle Ed gave my, gave my mother and father a ride to the airport that morning, and they ended up flying on another airline. They booked them on something else, and they came down. But he, they were supposed to get there, and I was going to pick them up at Lauderdale, and we were going to go to the Florida Derby together. So, because I got there the day before. So anyway, my Uncle Ed gave my mother $100 and said, that 50, 50 win in place on Mercedes won. And early fires, you know, and it was right, and it was some guy named Spencer that owned, I think he had a Saratoga connection, and he okay. won, I think he won a race at Saratoga and the, as a two-year-old. So my uncle wanted wanted 50 and 50. He gave my mother the money. So I, I, I'm at my Aunt Marguerite's waiting, and they call, and they say, well, all kinds of screw up. Eastern's, the flights are all canceled. We're trying to find another way to get there. And my mother said, by the way, John, do you have enough money to, Uncle Ed gave me 100 bucks. Can you bet his horse today, Mercedes won 50 and 50? And I said, yeah, I got enough. I'll do that. So, and we'll probably get in late tonight. So why don't you just go to go to Gulfstream and... Um, I had no cell phones in 1989. Okay, I didn't have cell phones. Yeah, just check and just check with Aunt Marguerite and keep an eye and, and, and let us know. We'll take a taxi or something like that, Aunt Marguerite, and we'll meet you there tonight. So I go to Gulfstream. I see a bunch of Saratoga guys: uh, Spike O'Hara, Jimmy Whitford, good, good buddy of Mike Mullaney's. And there's just there's a bunch of Saratoga guys hanging around a paddock. And we start getting into the sauce and we're drinking a little bit. And I told Jimmy Whitford. I said, uh, we were talking about the race and I, earlier in the card, and I said, yeah, my uncle, I said, my mom and dad were going to come, and I tell them the story, and I said, my uncle gave my mother $100, bet 50 winner place on Mercedes one, and I got to I got to get that bet in, and, or, you know, we keep drinking, bet some horses, easy goers on the undercard, oh, uh, wow. around that day, and um, anyway, the long and short of it is, is it gets to be about six, seven minutes to post, we're on the back, I see him saddle up, and I'm handicapping, and I'm at that time, I knew I kind of had in the back of my mind, i got to get better. 
but I wanted to handicap my own race. And I looked at Mercedes one, I didn't really like them, which goes to tell you I may not be the right guy to do this podcast today. But, <laughs> uh, for the Derby. but anyway, I end up picking Hawkster because Pink K, and you know I like human connections, and mm-hmm. Pink K is a famer, and he's riding, he's coming in to ride this horse, and I'm looking at him, he's five to one. I said, he's good value. Pink K's, you know, one of the best. Um, I'm going with this horse. So I bet, I think I bet 20 winning plays on Hawkster, and I came back. And Jimmy Whitford said, Who do you do? who'd you go with? I said, Hawkster. He said, would you get your uncle's bed in? I said, oh, man, he goes, you better get that thing in. The lines are getting long. It's only a couple minutes to post. So he, and he's got a beer. He's got a beer on the bar waiting for me, too. So he said, get the bed in. I'll, I'll stay here. So I get in line. I get it in maybe with 30 seconds, maybe a minute to, to post. And I get the bed in, and uh, I'm watching my I'm watching Hawkster. I'm not sure. paying yeah. attention to really my own <laughs> And then I, get, I realize early fires and, and, and Mercedes won, won, the, won the race. And he's like, I look up at the board, he's like 15 to 1. And I'm thinking, thank God I got oh, that bet in. That's right. Now, my Uncle Led has no idea that my mother's going to get the that the bet did because he gave my mother the money and he realized she wasn't going to get there. So when I got back to my Aunt Marguerite, maybe 8 o'clock that night, my mother and father were there. And my mother said, John, did you get that bet in? We watched the race uh, yeah. on TV here. I said, I said, yeah, I got it in. She goes, well, we got to call Uncle Ed because Uncle Ed uh, doesn't know. We didn't. I told him I thought you had got it in, but I called you, but I wasn't. So I called my Uncle Ed, and he answers, and he goes, he called me John Carter. He goes, John Carter, please tell your godfather your Uncle Ed. <laughs> I said, I did, Uncle Ed. I got the bet in, and uh, I said, but I, I didn't cash the ticket. I got the ticket. I got the because I'm going to go to Gulfstream again while I'm here. Okay. And he, so he says, okay, put your mother on the phone. And so he says, give your mother the ticket. <laughs> so I give my mom the ticket. And uh, and he said, take everybody out to dinner. We went to the restaurant. He says, take everybody out to dinner and then bring me the change. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, it was great. It was a great story. So it was fun. I mean, that was the fun part about it. Who doesn't love a big score story that ends up with a free dinner, right? Finally, guest handicapper Scott Carson joins us. Scott was gracious enough to call into our studios to record this segment since my travel schedule prevented us from talking live. Scott is, as many of you know, the founder of Public Handicapper at publichandicapper.com, and he and his partner Chris Larmy, who has also been a guest on our podcast, recently started a Public Handicapper podcast, which you can find on their site each Friday, reviewing the upcoming four contest races on the site. Scott had his choice of derby preps this weekend, the Santa Anita Derby, the Wood Memorial, and the Bluegrass Stakes, an exciting trio of preps from which to choose. Scott always has an interesting perspective on handicapping and is adept at finding live long shots. We need one this week, Scott. Hi, Bill, and hi to everybody who's listening to the Can Do podcast. Thank you for having me. I hope that Bill is getting his kicks on Route 66 as he drives across country. In the meantime, uh... We're going to handicap the Wood Memorial from Aqueduct, which is the race based on the handicapping of the big three preps this weekend, is the one that I feel most confident in. And the horse that I'm going to play pretty hardcore is Tax, who's the one horse. He's uh, he's run fast enough. He's already run fast enough to win this race. He's faster than any horse except for Haikal, who Haikal just ran very slightly faster in his last race. The Tax ran the uh, the race that was as fast or faster, 
back in December, on December 1st, where he was against the speed flow, but still managed to get third at 17 to 1. So, so, so Tax had a really good race then. And then in his next race, which was the Withers of Aqueduct, also at a mile and eighth, and both of these races are at a mile and eighth, uh, he was the favorite at two to one. He stumbled out of the gate. Then he rushed up and got position and kept position like on the inside the entire race. And then at the stretch, in the stretch, he tried to get through and got a little bit tight. It wasn't that bad because I, I watched the head on. It wasn't that bad. But he at least showed that he could overcome some adversity. And he didn't run a huge number in his last race, but the big number was in the race before on December 1st. So I think he's in a really good position to, if he can match that race, and I have no reason to think that he can't, that he can win this race from the inside position, which is what he did in his last race at nine furlongs. He is nine to two morning line. He's currently five to one on public handicapper. And just, uh, he's working out as good as he's ever worked out. He's running as fast in his workouts as he ever has. So I just looks like he's really primed and I have not heard, albeit I have not, uh, listen to other podcasts, so I don't know what other people are saying, but I think you know my intuition is that tax is going to go off at five to one or so, and he should. I think he's going to win at five to one. He's a great bet. Now, the other horse that I'm really interested in is Testitas. I pronounce that way because I heard a uh, commentator who had interviewed Bill Mott use that pronunciation, but it might also be Tacitus. Anyway, he ran a great race in the Tampa Bay Derby. He was in and among horses the whole way. He uh, uh, split horses into the stretch and then won the race. And most importantly, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the most important thing, but it's uh, an important thing is that at the end of the race, after the race was over, he galloped out a couple lengths better than Outshine, who's another contender in this race. So, so between those two horses, Tax and Tacitus, I think that's the exacta that you want to hammer. And I would hammer it more on the Tax side on top. But you can also, if you like Tacitus, you can hammer it the other way. I think that that is the real key exactly right in this race. And then I would say Outshine, even though he's a very talented horse, he could not keep up with Tacitus last race. I would put him in third. So it's not going to be like a huge payoff triple. It's going to be pretty formful, but that's the way I would play it. Thanks again for joining us. Next week, we'll be back with another edition of Can Do. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend. Good luck with all your picks. And of course, may the horse be with you. Here in the telegraph. Football Rivera fight. I hear his foot's all right. Of course, it all depends on the horse. Last night, I know it's silent.